I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. I'm going to be talking this morning about the commissioning of the disciples, and we're going to read out of Luke 24. Uh, But before I do, uh, last night we had the RBD training, and I, uh, I taught on some principles of management by objectives and how we set goals and so forth. But before I did that, there's something that has been uh, there is something that's been on my heart for a long time. And uh, as you as you progressively study scripture, you read scripture over and over and over again, and you uh, you see things. You use uh, bits and pieces of those things because scripture a lot will always interpret itself. But there is one particular scripture that I read over and over again, and I never could get the full meaning out of it. You can get uh, the generalities out of it, what it's saying. But this this particular scripture always, in a way, confounded me. And I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to talk to you about it. And this will blend right into the lesson this morning. But I feel like we need to, to hear this as a church. And it's uh, out of Matthew 24:36, and it says, But of that day and hour... Knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now that's, that's key. He's telling you there as it was in the days of Noah. So shall it be in the end times, our times. For as in those days that were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that the Noah entered into the ark. In fact, Luke, when he talks about that, he said that they were planting, building, just doing normal, general things, all right? And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I've read that again and reread that, and and one thing that's always confounded me was... He mentions Noah's day, and, and uh, in Luke he mentions Lot day, in the, Lot's day in the same, uh, same sentences as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot. But he does not mention one gross sin of that time. He does not mention sodomy. He does not mention rebellion. He does not mention any of that for that time. We know that was occurring because we go to the Old Testament and we can find it. But Jesus does not mention it, nor does he mention any of the similar sins that we have in our day. But he does mention planting, building, marrying, giving in marriage, all this kind of thing. And and I, I've always wondered, and the other day I felt like I got some revelation on that. And it, it was a matter of the greatest spiritual warfare that we have today is in that scripture that we are over committed to the self-centered affairs of life we are over committed to the self-centered our society today can pump in easy credit malls I mean, let me keep going what they can do. They can pump it right into our houses. And you can get easy credit to buy this. You can get easy credit to buy that. You go to the malls, you see all the things that they've got there. You know, it's, you're, you're overstimulated to buy and get yourself in such a mess that the only thing that you can, that you can do is worry about how you're going to get yourself out of the mess. 
You spend most of your time praying to get out of something that you got into because you got caught in one of the traps. What I told the, the leaders yesterday, it's, it's a demonic-inspired stressor because that's inspired by society. Society has got us so influenced that we don't live by God's standards anymore. We live by society's standards. And I'm not just talking about dress. I'm talking about those standards. And what scares me about this, if I can use that term, I hate to, but it scares me. Because you, you can talk about it and people cannot identify with it. We are so worried about, again, it's a self-centered affair. So there's nothing wrong with marrying, building, uh, you know, or, or planting or harvesting. There's nothing wrong with that. But in itself, Jesus was saying we are so committed to those things that we have lost sight of what's important. That's what he was saying. And there's another place in Matthew that, that, that really spooks me, and I've preached on it before, and that is where the, the people with the talents and that last man with that last talent that buried it and, and, and the Lord came in and told him, he said, you buried this. He said, because you did not put this out to usury, you did not multiply what I gave you. I'm going to throw you out into outer darkness where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. I'm throwing you into hell because you did not multiply. And what's the church is doing now? We're not multiplying. We are overcommitted to the self-centered affairs of life. And somebody in here that's not feeling conviction, say amen. <laughs> we are too committed. That's why we don't come to church. That's why we cut back services. All of this is because we are overcommitted to everything else but God's standard. When we fall in love with Jesus Christ again, that can't help but be revival because that's all he's looking for. He doesn't want people that have tried to serve him all their life to go to hell, but he wants to get our attention and we need to multiply a few things or that's exactly what's going to happen. We've got a commission, and that's where I'm leading into. We've got a commission from God for us to go out and preach the gospel to every creature. And if we can't preach that gospel, then we need to spend more time in prayer and seeking the will of God for each and every one of our own lives. And not everybody that's here is going to be going on to the foreign field or going somewhere else to do it when we've got thousands of people in Owen County that need help. That's preaching you're going to hear today. Luke 24, 44 through 53. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which was written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Just for the sake of saying it, uh, anybody who tells you that you don't need to do the demonstrative worship that we do in this church, you need to reread that scripture because Jesus said everything that was written in the Psalms concerning me. The psalmist knew that Jesus Christ was going to come on the scene. Jesus was God incarnate. And the psalmist said we need to worship him with everything we have. With the, the, the high-sounding cymbals, with the stringed instruments, we need to worship him. We need to worship him in the dance. We need to worship him in the run. We need to worship him in leaping and shouting and clapping of hands. That was being fulfilled the book of Psalms. Jesus himself said that's what needs to happen to fulfill what the reason he was here. So why do we dance and why do we shout and why do we run? Because we're fulfilling the scripture that Jesus said we need to fulfill. And everybody said hallelujah. Thank you Jesus. I'm loving you. 
Then opened he, and boy, this is it. I'll talk about this later. They're understanding that they might understand the Scripture. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry you in the city of Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them, and he carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Look at that. Continually. How many times you go to church? Well, if you don't go to the Bible, it tells you. They were continually in the, script, in the temple. That wasn't even church. They had to go on the outer porch. They couldn't even go in the temple. That was the outer porch that they worshipped at. So they, they, that's how important these things is. We've got to continually be in connection with him. And we can't do this by being so caught up in the world and so caught up with our own problems that we fail to touch the things of God. We cannot be that. And if we don't start learning that now, you're going to be standing on this side of Jordan because you're going to be held back by everything on this side, the standard of the world instead of the standard of God. Thank you. I'm glad somebody said that. The rest of them is giving me a long face. And you tell me I can't. I don't care. You go out and buy you a, a brand new Cadillac, brand new Lincoln. What do you drive? Okay. <laughs> Lincolns and Cadillacs are for rich people. But, you know, Explorer Limited is for us poor preachers. As long as it doesn't say Chevy on the front of it, it's all right. Oh, hallelujah. Mikey, you got some help right there in front of you. You've got a guy that sells them, so you're all right. <laughs> all right, you may be seated. What is? What is commission, commissioning? What is it? There is engineering firm, or one in particular engineering firm, that in their list on the Internet, and their list of what they do, they list in there that they commission. And so, you know, how, you know, I, I, I know of the military term, commissioned officers, and so forth. But how does an a, a engineering firm commission something? But I began to look at it, and it, it's, it's interesting because what they do is anything that they've had a part of, design of a building, designing certain uh, amenities within that building, they... As they begin to do that, then after it's all finished, they go and test everything that they, if they put any kind of environmental services. They test those things. They test electrical. They test everything that they've had any, anything to do with the design of that. And when they're done, that building then is commissioned by that firm. That means that they can commission and say this building is exactly what we said it would be. And that's kind, of, that's kind of interesting when you begin to, to look at this and then you put this in the perspective of what the apostles, the Great Commission as we call it, at the end of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples. Now, uh, keep in mind, if you were with Jesus for the three and a half years and then for the 40 days after the resurrection, that you should know how to be saved. Don't, don't you think? And so he commissions them. He said, now you know what you need to do. 
Now, my commission to you is that you go out and you take this and you see other people say, that's the Great Commission. That's why it's so vital because that thing is not ended. That Great Commission is still in effect today. That wasn't just for the 12. That's for us today. It didn't stop back then. We have church today so that people have a place to where they can find God and they don't have to be lost. Three and a half, one and a half years, Jesus preached, he taught, he healed, he cast out demons, he spread his message of love, salvation, and forgiveness around the region of ancient Palestine. But the scope of his message's influence was not to be limited to that area or to that ethnic people. It was in no way to be limited just to them. And after his resurrection, Jesus intended for his disciples, whom he had instructed and trained to carry on his ministry in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And since all have sinned, in Romans 5.12, the gospel held universal implications. This gospel is not just for a, a small group of people tucked away in some back corner lot in a little bitty white clapboard church. That's not what this is for. This is for every person, every individual. Now, how in the world did I come coming up with what I'm about to say? I don't know, but I'm going to say it. My wife uh, handed me yesterday's, but I didn't read it. But she said, I want you to read this one letter to the editor. And she said, don't read anything else. Just read that. I said, okay. And this guy wrote in about evolution. And I'm paraphrasing it. He did it very much better than what I can say it. But he said it, he found it amusing that the same people who say evolution is right and that homosexuality is right, he said they are completely in reverse of what is the truth of the matter is. He said if there was such a thing of evolution, he said there would be no way that homosexuality could be right. See? See? He said if that was true, then a genetic defect would be a part of that order. So the same people who say one is okay and the other is okay are contradicting themselves. God doesn't do anything halfway. And for anybody to say that something like that, either one of them, is normal, is completely off the wall, out of their mind. They are. Because it doesn't make sense. None of it can make sense. And so what I what do you say that for is I'm saying that we are not a group of people that are off the wall or just, you know, walking by blind faith. Listen, anybody that believes in evolution is walking by a blinder faith than anything, anybody that does. So you just keep in mind when God commissioned his disciples, he commissioned you, he commissioned each and every one of you to take this truth. This is the truth. There is no other truth. You hear me. There is not any other way to heaven outside of the way the Bible tells us to go to heaven. And we've got that commission. Don't you think that you're some kind of secondary group of people? We are the primary people on the face of the earth. Give the Lord a hand clap if you believe it. (laughs) 
So here, he said he, he told him, this, this gospel held universal implications, and not merely to the Jews, but to the non-Jews living throughout the Greco-Roman world. And as the prophets had foretold, the glorious gospel would extend its reach to the Gentiles who would seek its light. Isaiah said it, Jeremiah said it, Malachi said it, and, and it's, it's, it's said this several different times of how this light would also go into the Gentile world. And it's uh, and an interesting reversal is whereas the Jews expected the nations to come from outside to Jerusalem as the center of the world, Jesus tells his disciples that they will begin in Jerusalem, then move out to the nations. The Jews said, you come to us. Jesus said, we go to them. That's, what's in, that's important to understand that. Uh, that works in the church, too. It's not a matter, well, we got a church here in Owen County. Everybody can come to us. No, sir. Jesus said you go to them to help them find us. Now, I know that people do come in here. Thank God they do. And they just come in here. It's, it's this gentleman back here, he's three houses away from us. And he's been coming, taking a Bible study, and thank God he is. I, I, I just told him today, it's one of the greatest things you can do. There is nothing more important than taking care of your soul. Nothing more important than doing that. So to fully understand the goal and purpose of any great work of literature, such as the Gospels, great works of literature, you have to understand the beginning and you have to understand the ending. That's a great work of literature. So we have to examine all of these, and we're going to examine the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, starting with Luke as well as a portion of the beginning of Acts, because in order for you to truly understand Luke and the great commission Luke gave, you have to also read the first part of the book of Acts. You need to read all the book of Acts because it's the only book of history that's in the New Testament. And that is where the church began. If you understand the book of Acts, then you'll understand how to be saved. So it's important for us to look at this, and, and, uh, and this is the only way that we can really see the four-dimensional perspective on Jesus' mandate to the disciples, which was to take his message to all nations. The disciples had passed their final exam after the resurrection, and Jesus commissioned them to a worldwide mission with one message for everyone. And this is according to the pocket Merriam-Webster English Dictionary. A commission is the authority to act as agent for another. Thus, you would understand why a, uh, a, a, you know, the one group could commission a building you know, of engineers because that they were acting as an agent for the person who had commissioned, if you would, the building of that particular building. So they were to act as an agent for another. The trouble with Christians is that we think we're secret agents. Don't want anybody to see me. Don't want anybody. Nicodemus people. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, I get to teaching. I get to get a lot of things on my mind. I'll just back down here. Let me move this direction. All right. Thank you, Lord, for helping me out and get back on schedule here. So the disciples, again, they were serve as agents and travel into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The ending of Luke's gospel features two significant post-resurrection appearances by Jesus to his disciples. Luke's version of the empty tomb, told in Luke 24, 1 through 12, consists of an appearance by two angels proclaiming that Jesus had risen rather than an appearance of Jesus himself. The first post-resurrection appearance in Luke, the Emmaus Road episode, 
And it's, 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 this is significant in part because it underscored the disciples' lack of understanding of Christ's foretold suffering, death, burial, and resurrection, as well as the, the root of these events in the Old Testament Scriptures. You see, this, this is one reason, and I'm going to come to Scripture in a few minutes. This is one reason that Jesus had a hard time with his disciples. Because these men were raised with Old Testament. But yet they could not see when Jesus spoke of the resurrection, when he spoke of the, the tomb, the, the crucifixion, when he spoke of these things of Messiah, they should have understood the prophecies because all of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. And so he, in and, and a few places, it looks like he, he lost it a little bit with them because they could not quite get it. So this is where he had to open their understanding. So the events that occurred in Jesus' life were not merely random. These were not random events that just happened, but were the direct result of the fulfillment of God's written word. A favorite motive of Luke that he often brings out in his writings is this. And as uh, Charles Talbert points out the theme of the fulfillment of prophecy in, in a commentary, he says that uh, from the standpoint of the Luke narrative, the key to making sense of the death of Jesus lies in construing it within the matrix or the outline, if you would, of the scriptures. So you, you could not understand these writings unless you understood all the scripture. And Jesus kept trying to get them throughout his ministry to to understand he kept dropping these nuggets he said you know i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna die and i'm gonna be resurrected on the third day and i'm gonna do this and they should have understood that this was all spoken of in the old testament it's the same way with salvation salvation is not just new to the new testament salvation is throughout the old testament we're going to come back to that, but it's, we have to understand that the Old Testament is not a book that you just fold up and put away and only read the New Testament. In order to understand the New Testament, you need to understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In the Emmaus Road episode, two disciples, one named Cleopas, encountered an apparent an unknown visitor who seemed surprisingly ignorant of the recent happenings in Jerusalem surrounding Jesus of Nazareth. They failed to recognize that this mysterious visitor was, in fact, the risen Jesus himself. Now, Jesus castigated. He castigated the two disciples for their unbelief. He said this, Luke 24, 25, O fools and slow of heart. To believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? You know, it's interesting because I, I, as I read that scripture, something came to mind. I've been teaching on Wednesdays on Proverbs and the whole book of, uh, well, actually the whole book of Proverbs, but the whole chapter 26 has a great deal of calling people fools. But yet Jesus himself said in, in the book of Matthew, call no man a fool. Or you're going to be in danger of hell fire. I love getting things like that. You know, because it, it, cause the Bible doesn't make any mistakes. But, you know, you, you, can, you can talk to one person and say, oh, you're foolish. And you've got some old saint over there, you can't do that. You'll go to hell because you call him foolish. I would be that old saint. <laughs> but there again, certain words defined there's more than one word that's defined as fool or translated as fool and that one in Matthew where it says call no man a fool I've looked that up and it's actually call no man a moron 
or stupid. That's what he was saying. You don't call anybody stupid. Now, this word, O fools and slow of heart, that Jesus said to his disciples, means sensual and unwise. You are going off your sensual part. That goes along with what I was talking about earlier, that the sensual part, the carnal part of all of us, identifies with the world and do the, wants to do the things of the world, those self-centered affairs of life that Jesus was talking about. We want that. And so that, in, its, in that sense, we're foolish if we follow after those things, or sensual and unwise. So he told them this. They should have realized that the Jewish scriptures witnessed to the very events that had just transpired. The, 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 the Jewish scriptures did. The visitor went on to explain that two men, that the entire Old Testament canon was actually about him. In Luke 24, 27, he said, In being at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He began to tell them. He opened their understanding. He said, I'm, I'm, can you imagine, I don't know what kind of time frame we hear, but he was able to go back to the Old Testament and open every bit of that up to those two men as he was walking along the road. That's pretty good. But not until later, when he broke bread with them, did, he re did they recognize who he was. Astonished by this revelation of the stranger's identity, they confided to each other, did not our heart burn within us while we talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the Scripture. So he opened it up to them. Let, 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 me, let, let me help somebody, especially new people right now. If you really, and, and I know I, I run into this a, a great deal in the church. You've got new people that pray through, filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name. And they, you know, they come in and they say, I'm really having a hard time understanding as I read the Bible. Um, one thing that I found that if you want the Lord to really open up the Bible to you, you've got to read it regardless of whether you understand it or not. There comes a time... As you begin to study Scripture, and uh, I, I'm a strong one in, in this. I, I, I'll read it, but I also like, as, if you go through the Bible and you go through the Bible a second time, then you'll begin to read things in the Old Testament that refers to the New Testament or vice versa. And you take that and go back to that area. That's studying the Bible. You read something that, that, that you've read in the New Testament. You go from there. You keep a mark there, and you go to the New Testament, and you read that. Then that begins to open up to you. That's how the Lord will reveal and open up Scripture to an individual. You don't just quit because you don't understand it. You read it and go back, and the second time you'll begin to have a little bit more understanding. And then as you hear something preached or taught within the church, you'll begin to put that together with something that you just read read recently how many times have we heard that how many times has it happened to you so you put it together that's how you begin to understand and you know there is no no excuse for us not to have an understanding of the scripture if you have a hard time reading you can get this you can get i don't know if they got it uh, uh do they have it now digital and scripture you know that i know they had them on on uh, cds before but is it digital do you know if any you can get it online or can't Okay. Well, you can still buy it in CDs, I know, and you can listen to it. And, you know, the, I, 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 um, I had it on, on cassette, and I wore out a whole set because I would always plug it in 
and listen. No, regardless of where I went, I plug it in and I get a, a, maybe a, a few verses or a chapter or something. But the more you listen to it, the more you understand it. And what's so surprising is that you can begin to do this and all of a sudden something that was so hard for you to understand, something that may have been taught or preached, all of a sudden you're reading or listening to it uh, being read to you and all of a sudden it just opens up to you and it begins to make sense. Anything that is worthwhile, anything that is good, takes effort. It takes effort. It takes some sacrifice on your part. Instead of being able to listen to your favorite music, you're listening to the Bible. But there is nothing like having a good understanding of Scripture. There is nothing like that. And so, so we see that, that the, he opened this up to them. And it was necessary that Jesus open unto them a comprehension of Scripture. For, for ironically, the Old Testament made sense of the things that had occurred, and the things that had occurred helped make sense of the Old Testament. You get that. As uh, another commentator said, he said, What has happened with Jesus can be understood only in light of the Scriptures. Yet, the Scriptures themselves can be understood only in light of what has happened to Jesus. The two are mutually informing. So let's put it in uh, pure English. How's that? Scripture illuminated Jesus and the things he accomplished illuminated scripture that's how it works they were both inclusive mutually they 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 helped us to understand and as they began to see when he began to open up their understanding they saw what had happened to jesus helped them to understand the old testament scriptures and the old testament scriptures helped them to understand what happened to jesus they realized he was messiah the second post-resurrection appearance in Luke occurred, uh, Luke uh, 24:36, where Jesus himself stood in the midst of the 11 disciples trying to calm and reassure them and ate in front of them, imparted final commissioning instructions, and then ascended into heaven. We'll focus, and we're going to focus on the commissioning passage that draw out some of the implications for ministries today. As with the Emmaus Road episode and this appearance, the Lord again drew the disciples' attention towards the astounding scriptural fulfillment of his person and work in a profound way. The entirety of scriptural witness pointed to Jesus himself. Luke 24:44 says, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. We read this earlier. He's letting them know, I was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And all of these things had to be fulfilled. One thing's for sure. When God, there's a prophecy and God makes a promise, there's a truth concerning Him, it will be fulfilled. There will be a catching away of the church. There will be a heaven. There will be a hell. All of these things are in the Scripture. They will be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. 
The disciples should never, should not have been confused or baffled by Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. If they had truly understood the collective message of Scripture, the seemingly strange events of the recent past should have made complete sense to them. Craig Evans, and another commentator, makes notes. He said, the main point that Jesus makes in verse 44 is that there really is nothing new or unexpected in his resurrection on the third day the New International Biblical Commentary. The disciples could have calmly welcomed these events as the expected fulfillment of Scripture. Instead, the Bible says they were much perplexed, Luke 24, 4. They were afraid, Luke 24, 5. Considering reports of his resurrection as unbelievable idle tales, 24 and 11. Wondering at that which was coming to pass, 24.12. Being kept from recognizing him, 24.16. Sad, 24.17. Astonished, 24.22. Fools, there again, 24.25. Terrified and affrighted, 24.37. And troubled, 24.38. Jesus had personally forewarned them on several occasions that these things were going to happen. Do you, do you see, these were men that walked with him, heard him personally, and they still didn't get it. Should we feel like it? It helps me to read that stuff over and over and over again. Because if he told them 12 men over and over and over again, then I shouldn't be upset because a few people don't get it when you tell them from the pulpit. You ever seen, you know, I told you with a demonic stressor is a society today, it's a demonic stressor. But you ever seen the unseen wall between the pulpit in the pew. You can take your phaser pistol and shoot it, and it, it all crinkles around. It's just an unseen wall. And unless, unless you can really blow through that thing, and, and I, I, this is the unseen wall. I'm not talking about all little demons that walk around pinching you on the leg or, or causing a baby behind you to start squalling right when the best point's made. So you have to deal with all that. That's another demonic stressor. The unseen wall and the little demonic imps that pinch you on the leg. There's always something when you're in there you can get into. That's the reason sometimes you have to stop everything and just do something off the wall from up here because you've got people. I can see you. You're going into the thousand-yard stair. <laughs> you know? And I thought, got to do something. Thousand-yard stair is here. And that's another devil, the thousand-yard devil. Uh, and you have to get their attention, especially on a Sunday morning. So I guess it shouldn't seem that Jesus, you know, he was just as upset as I get upset sometimes when, when you have someone come up to you after service and ask you a question of what you've already covered. What did you mean? What I said. I don't always remember what I say. You know, they grin me saying, I can't remember what I said. You know, I, what do you think I am? Walking computer? you got to tell me. That God is faithful. It should encourage us to believe and embrace the Lord's promise to the church. As outlandish as they might seem to the natural man, God is not a man that he should lie. Numbers 23, 19. You stop and think about that. I just don't see how there could possibly be a catching away of the church. Well, of course you can't. You're not God. No, you can't understand that. 
to the natural man, that seems completely ridiculous to think that we're going to have a new body. We're going to be walking around with just a soul man. You know, we can disappear and appear and, and, and all this. That, that seems to the carnal man, you can't understand that. But yet some of these same people can believe that we just lost our tail 10,000 years ago. You get that? Which one seems outlandish to you? Of course, again, I told that. I sometimes look at some people and I can really believe there might be evolution. Let's move on. All right. By expounding unto the two disciples along the Emmaus Road and all the scriptures, the, th- the things concerning him, Luke 24, 27, Jesus had opened to them the scriptures. In the process of breaking bread, their eyes were open. They realized Jesus was the one who they were talking with. Jesus had imparted spiritual insight, enabling them both to recognize his identity and understand his mission. When Jesus later appeared in the elect to the eleven, he also provided the illumination they needed as he opened their understanding and that they might understand the scriptures. He began by explaining that predicted nature of his death, the resurrection, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to die uh, from the, or excuse me, to rise from the dead the third day in 2446. Jesus did not end his parting words at that point, for his total mission had yet to be accomplished by those who are witnesses of these things. The disciples who had witnessed his resurrection were now to proclaim that resurrection. They were to preach repentance and remission of sins in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Those who believed the proclaimed gospel message, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 4, were to respond by repenting. What is repentance? And he was telling him repenting is turning away from sin. It's being sorrowful, but it's also turning away, being sorry enough to quit. Uh, and remission of sins, of course, we know. Where do we get remission of sins? This is Luke 24, great commission according to Luke. We get remission of sins in water baptism in Jesus' name. What is remission? Remission is the putting away of sin. It's, it's covering them. When you go down in the waters of baptism, you're not taking a bath. You're going down in obedience in the name of Jesus. When that name is proclaimed over you, sins are remitted. The blood is applied. There's three applications of blood. One in repentance, one in in baptism, and one when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That goes back to the Old Testament and the Passover when they had to apply the blood to each lentil and to the doorpost. Three applications, the shape of a cross. That goes all the way back to that time. That is happening here. It is a type when you're water baptized. It is a part part of the covenant token. It, was, it, it took the place of the circumcision of the flesh. It is now the circumcision of the heart. That's what's important. He told him, you preach this. I've got a plan for people. I've got a way for them to escape this nasty world and to escape hell. And that plan is in effect now. I have died. I have taken all the sins of the world on my body on the cross. And I'm alive forevermore. I have already conquered death, hell, and the grave. And I've given you the keys to the kingdom. And you've got a right to go out and to preach this message. Oh, I'm glad I know the truth. I am glad I know the truth. Hallelujah. He goes on. Finally, Jesus made this startling statement. He said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. In Luke twenty-four forty-nine, His final instructions were to remain in Jerusalem for an empowering experience in which they would be endued with power from above. 
This experience is variously referred to in Luke's second volume as being filled with the Holy Ghost. Acts 2, 4, 9, 17. The Spirit, or the gift of the Holy Ghost, was poured out. 2, 17, 18, 10, 45. Baptized with the Holy Ghost. Uh, again, 1, 5, Acts 1, 5, 11, 16. The Holy Ghost came or fell upon them. 1, 8, 10, 44, 11, 15, 19, and 6. Received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 2, 38, 8, 15, verses 17, 19, 10, 47, and 19, and 2. Or the Holy Ghost was given. And Acts 8, 18, and 15, it's reason you need to read the book of Acts. Just like Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the ensuing mission to the Gentiles, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost had been predicted by the Old Testament prophets, entailing the promise of the Father. Joel had foretold this experience, and it shall come to pass afterwards. He said that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh in Joel 2.29. And Acts 2.17, they actually go back and they repeat the promise of Joel to let you know that this Holy Ghost experience is exactly what Joel had prophesied. So it's important to know that this message, this Holy Ghost experience, is not just for the twelve. It didn't stop uh, back in the first Corinthians, uh, the 13th chapter. It didn't stop then. It didn't stop now. He said, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all those that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Let me tell you, my friend, it is still good today. God is still pouring out His Spirit on people. The Spirit not only will save you, but the Spirit will keep you until the time that the rapture of the church is going to take place. Knowing Jesus through the power of the Holy Ghost is the greatest gift anybody has ever had. Oh, hear me. This is the most wonderful thing that you could ever experience. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Don't ever get tired of hearing about the Holy Ghost. Don't ever get tired about hearing people speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. Don't ever get tired of somebody getting up and jumping with joy because God has just given them the spirit of joy, the spirit of peace, and the spirit of righteousness. God has just saved their soul. They're ready to go to They're ready to go to heaven. That should be joyful for the church. Anytime somebody speaks in tongues, everybody in this church ought to be rejoicing with them. Lord, when you talk about the Holy Ghost, it's a, it is such a powerful thing. Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. We try to get every, off the Holy Ghost. It's both, it's both terms, same thing. We try not to say it because ghost, you know, makes kids scared. I have a hard time saying spirit because it sounds too... I'm sorry. I just have a hard time with it. I don't know why. It's too charismatic and something. I don't know. You know, I I think, Brother Fox, you and I are the last of the macho men. There's no more. When we're gone, pulpits are going to be full of people saying, Holy Spirit. I'm really trying. I really am. I probably will. I just said I was trying. I'm, you know, make you feel better. <laughs> you know, like the first disciples, we desperately need the Lord to open our understanding of Scripture. 
We desperately need it, all of us. You know, I, I, any time I have any revelation at all, it's, just, it's a wonderful thing. And revelation is certainly not limited to preachers or teachers. Revelation is for all of us. And, and God wants to reveal to us. Matthew's ending is a complimentary, going from Luke to Matthew, it's a complimentary uh, to Luke's offering a different perspective and emphasis with which to view Jesus' parting moments as he commissioned his disciples. And unlike Luke, Matthew's conclusion did not record the story of Jesus' ascension or speak, excuse me, of the coming of the Spirit. Matthew did record, however, Jesus' assurance that he would be with his disciples always, even unto the end of the world in Matthew 28, 20. In Matthew's account, Jesus gathered the eleven in Galilee on a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And as a uh, New Bible commentary says, here the Christian mission has its proper starting point in a meeting with the risen Jesus, now enthroned as king of all. Mountains played an important role. Jesus took them on the mountains. That was symbolic because we see in the book of Exodus when Moses met with God, it was on a mountain. So he takes his disciples up on the mountain to give them the great commission according to Matthew. And be, be made aware of this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the same great commission. There's different aspects of that great commission in each one of them. But when you go to the book of Acts, you see everything that was laid out on all three of the great commission all come to pass in the book of Acts. Every one of them. Each one of them just has something else, but it all comes to pass in the book of Acts. So it's got a starting, a good starting point here on the mountain. And significantly, while Matthew's gospel often pointed out how the events of Jesus' life were predicted by the Old Testament, for example, you see Matthew 1, 2, 4, and 15, the ending of Matthew did not explicitly focus on Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture or his opening up of the disciples' understanding as Luke's did. Rather, the terse and condensed account that concludes Matthew's highlighted Jesus' royal authority as messianic king. You see the Matthew was actually written for the Jews, and it was simply it was opening up to the Jewish people that this is your Messiah that you have longed for. They did not accept it as a whole, but that's what Matthew was telling them. So he was mandating this. He says, this is your messianic king to his followers, some of whom worshipped him, but some doubted, according to Matthew twenty-eight seventeen. And Jesus Christ possessed all power in heaven and in earth. So he commissioned the disciples to go and teach all nations. This is, this is the great commission, according to Matthew. Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. As R.T. France has aptly noted, said these verses bring the whole gospel to a dynamic conclusion which is in fact more a beginning than an end. Here the defeat of Golgotha is transformed into the triumph of Galilee. So from the, the defeat to triumph, he's letting him know this is the purpose in all this. Folks, if there was anything that you can ever get outside of salvation from this, and you look at these scriptures, and you try to think of the condition of the disciples, and how Jesus was trying to get this across to them. You know, they felt defeated. They felt everything was over with. Things didn't work out. This was their, 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 their teacher. Their rabbi, Jesus, he'd done miracles. He, he, had to be, he had to be God incarnate. Peter recognized it. But yet they felt defeated because of what they saw for a short time on the cross. And even though he told them, I'm going to be up in three days, 
He had to take care of this. Sometimes you can be in such a low position, and if you'll just give it time, that down position can turn out to be the most glorious thing that ever occurred in your life. Instead of whimpering and whining about it, look back and say, what did I pray for and what is God doing in this situation for me? The most powerful things can occur out of some of the most drastic and dire circumstances. You know, the first part of Jesus' command and commissioning the disciples is to go ye. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. They were not to remain in Israel, hoping the nations would come to them. Rather, go is the operative act. As now, God's people are no longer to stay in Jerusalem and be kind of a show and tell for the nations, but they're actively to go and take the message to the nations. Uh, in Zondervan's uh, commentary, he said, When the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions, and she came to Jerusalem in 1 Kings 10, 1 and 2. But unlike that case of the queen of Sheba coming to Solomon, believers were to carry the glory of the Lord outward to the nations. That's what he's telling them. They, they, they were condensed. They were in one place, and they were just getting through to the Jews, and God sent some really <laughs> some some horrible uh, situations into them and they were martyred and they were being killed and they were being tortured and all this and he moved them out of there. He said, I told you to go. I did not tell you to stay. The last thing I told you was to go into all nations. And that's what we're supposed to do. The other side of that coin is this. In local churches... You see so many people who get this call to mission fields. And they're not really called to mission fields. That is why, that is why, and I, I made this statement to the leaders last night, this is why you have to be cautious of what kind of call that you have in your life. Not everybody's called to the mission field. You can look at it and see the need. I understand that. But you don't know what, what all of this includes. A person has to have that call to go. You can hear a message like this and say, "Oh, well, you know, I, I, I've got to go. I've got to go to, uh, to you know, Tasmania. You know, Tasmanian devils over there. So I got to go get rid of them." And you know, and and and, and you know that that that's all fine and good. But the time you get to Tasmania and you find out that there are a bunch of headhunters over there, you want to come home. You know, things are not always what they appear. I've got God on my side. Well, yes, you do. And what God called you to do is be a witness. I was talking to Brother Whitnight about that. We were talking about that last night. God called you to be a witness, not to go out to Tasmania and cast out devils. So you've got to be sure. Too many people grab the first thing that they feel. Take that desire you have and see if it works here. If it works here, then maybe you can go to Tasmania. If you go to Tasmania, call me over. I'd like to hunt some Tasmanian devils. All right. Go to every nation. Early and again, Gospels say he limited the scope of his and his disciples' original mission to ethnic Jews. But when he commanded them to go into the way of the Gentiles and into a city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He told them, we go to Israel first. Because they are my people from the beginning. They get the first shot at this. But he said, after that, then we go everywhere. He later explained, he said, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. And ironically, 
However, immediately afterward, Jesus healed a Canaanite woman. After he had said that, he healed a Canaanite woman. I'm not sent to the Canaanites. I'm sent to the Jews. But that doesn't mean a Canaanite can't experience what I've got for them. That's what he was saying. <clears throat> Jesus healed the Canaanite woman's daughter, called attention to his mother's great faith. And while Matthew is clearly a Jewish-oriented gospel, it does, it does show a strong interest in Gentiles. And its climatic ending broadened the focus to encompass all nations. The disciples were to make disciples. In effect, they were to multiply dramatically by making more disciples like themselves from among the nations. Discipleship involves a lifelong pattern of dedication to following Jesus and his commands. The disciples were to, to actively teach people how to live for God. Robert Mounts notes, a disciple is not simply one who has been taught, but one who continues to learn. That's something that's, that, that is very, very true. You never stop learning. That's why it's important to continue to, to, to go through the Scriptures, to read the Scriptures, to be in church, to listen to the teaching, to listen to the preaching and learn. That's why you need to make notes. That's why you need to keep journals. That's why you need to do all of this, because you can record some of this. stuff. You can go back. I I told him I've had a journal ever since I started. And, and when, I, when I feel like I get to the end of this journal, then I'll be done. That's what I've got this thing written in my journal. When I get to here, I'm done. I've had this thing for 20 years. I don't write every day in a journal. I only write highlights. I'm going to write today in it. Tony and Bob made it to church together. Hallelujah. <laughs> and so, you know, it's important things. It's important things that you write in it. But, but the fact is that I can take that journal and go back to it, and I can see some of those important things that happened to me. I'm always learning and remembering. Writing things down helps you to remember some of those lessons that sometimes we forget. So it's good to do that and to, and to remind yourself of some of the good things that have happened to you, how God has helped you in a lot of areas. So they were to make disciples, and they were to, to continue to learn. The disciples were to call not for a superficial response. They didn't just want a superficial response. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Nothing happening to you. That's not what the disciples... They were called for a commitment. They were calling for a commitment. Commitment. Not only for salvation, but that you also will go out and make disciples. That's what they were calling for. There's no hint... No hint in Matthew's ending that while the disciples would be responsible to teach all nations. Now follow this. Don't, don't lose this one. They would be permitted to proclaim a different message to different nations. They were not to declare one gospel to the Parthians, another to the Medes, another to the Eliamites. Instead, they were to preach one gospel. They were to teach all nations to observe all things Jesus had commanded. They were to instruct all all people to follow the same directives Jesus had taught his first disciples. In other words, when Matthew said, go out to teach all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, Peter was standing right there, and he didn't say, Matthew, you lying hypocrite. He didn't say that. And then when Peter got up and said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of the sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Matthew didn't say, Peter, you hypocrite. So what are you saying? I'm saying that Peter 
and Matthew both were obedient to what Jesus told them. Go baptize them in the name of. Not the title, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Of the three, which one has a name? Jesus, the only name there is. So that's why they were preaching. While the disciples were commissioned to make disciples of all nations, their effectiveness in carrying out this mission would be jeopardized if they lacked the actual authority to implement it. With no power behind their preaching, the disciples' words would have fallen on the ground. First Samuel 3.19 actually said that every word that Samuel spoke, none of them fell on the ground. And their ministry would have amounted to failure. Thankfully, Jesus abundantly equipped and empowered the disciples. Mark's gospel emphasized Jesus' authority as a divine wonder worker to heal and cast out demons. So we look at Mark now for a minute. He also promised to work the miraculous through the ministry of his disciples, Mark 6, 7 through 13. In commissioning the disciples to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, 15, Jesus assured them, these signs shall follow them. This was a great, these signs shall follow them that believe. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not harm them. All of those occurred in the Scripture with the exception of drinking poison. That's the only one that did not occur. We see uh, Paul, when he was in a shipwreck, that he was picking up wood on an island, and a deadly serpent bit him on the arm. He just picked up his arm, shook the snake off into the, into the coals, into the, into the fire. And all the natives were around expecting him to swell up and die. And he didn't. And as a result of that, they became believers. You see, the key here is every time you get a fire going in the church, you're going to stir up a, a serpent. And when he tries to bite you, you just shake him off in the fire. You got that? More fire in the church, more devils are going to jump up. I preached a message a long time ago called the Serpent Line. And there is in the mountains a particular line that, that snakes will not go over. Too cold. And if you get high enough, you never have to worry about snakes. So keep that in mind. Higher you get, less you're going to be bothered. I think there's a key to that because no matter how much you stir up, there's only going to be snakes trying to bite at you, but you can get so high that you don't you ignore them. You don't even pay attention to them anymore. So anyway, he told them that these things were going to happen. He said, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. The disciples were to preach one message, the gospel to all the world. And all of these things, including in these three great commissions, they were all preached in the book of Acts. All of them. Everything. And, and they assuredly count on the Lord's presence to be working with them. They knew that. After briefly narrating Jesus' glorious ascension in Mark 16, 19, Mark recorded that they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. This statement provides a condensed synopsis of the disciples' post-ascension ministry, which is narrated with considerable detail in the book of Acts. And significantly, as the disciples preached everywhere, Jesus was undergirding their ministry and confirming the words with signs following. What an assurance that was. And you know, that's not changed, folks. It's absolutely not changed. God still backs up his ministry. He still does. 
I still believe, and I've had this happen before. I've had people who've had afflictions in their body, they're sick, and I've told them, you let me baptize you in Jesus' name, and that sickness is going to, is going to be out of your body. And I baptized them, and the sickness left. I've had, on the other side of it, I've had people, I said, you can then receive the Holy Ghost, and I said, your financial problems will run away. And that happened. I've seen it happen. God has confirmed it time and time again. It, it is something that occurs all the time. It probably happens more to you than you even realize. You give somebody, you give, if somebody is obedient to the word of God, God is going to confirm that you're preaching to them the truth. They're going to confirm that. It goes on to say in the beginning of Acts dovetails nicely with the ending of the gospel of Luke. Filling in some details omitted from Luke. And this includes a conversation Jesus had with his disciples prior to his ascension in response to a question as to whether he would presently restore again the kingdom to Israel. Jesus noted the timetable was beyond their purview. He said, and he roundly states that the matter of the time of God's action is his own affair. And it's not open to men to share his knowledge. And since this is God's secret, there is no place for human speculation. So in other words... We know that we're in the season of the coming of the Lord, but we, we cannot, and we'd be real stupid to set a time when he's coming. Well, the Lord's coming on Wednesday at 3.15 p.m. I know this by the way the stars are lined up. That's, that's astrology, so you're in the wrong thing anyway, so it's not going to work. But I'm saying that, you know, people come into all these kind of things. They read something in the Scripture, and they feel like all these things. We're living in the season. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. I said that last night. Uh, they did a, David Wilkerson wrote a thing where, he's, where they were interviewing, and he wrote about this. He heard this on the radio. They were interviewing people on the streets of New York City and asking them about the morality of America. And everyone that they, pretty much everyone that they interviewed said the same thing, that America was going to hell in a handbasket. And they said that we would let any kind of scoundrel or lawbreaker into government just simply to keep our, our standard of living up. That was people on the street. If they see it, how much more should we see it? So, yes, the Bible says that we shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth in Acts 1.8. So we can see that God, when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and you speak with other tongues, you will receive power, power like you have never experienced before. You feel good after you're baptized in Jesus' name. You feel good after you repent and you get sins off of you and then the sins are, are washed off of you in the waters of baptism. But when you receive the Holy Ghost... You get a high that's just unbelievable. Now, let me tell you, that is the way things are. Stand with me this morning. I'm all fired up. Preaching, preaching the Holy Ghost, preaching salvation, there's nothing like it. You really want to feel good, go find you somebody to preach this to. Teach a Bible study to them. You'll feel good. That person prays through, you'll feel better. Go pray them through right there at the house. You do that. Brother Horton had one baptized last night in your... Uh, jail ministry had 96 in attendance and uh, had one that they baptized. Let's give the Lord a hand. I knew I was going to teach this morning. He sent me that text last night and got me all fired up. Boy, I tell you. You know, I, I, I remember the days we baptized six, seven, eight. Uh, I think we one time baptized ten at, at one time here. I want to say it again. And the only way to do it is just keep preaching this way. Nobody in here, nobody else in here to hear it, then I'm hoping it'll go out and we'll, we'll touch it. We'll just keep preaching this way. 
All right, you believe that with me? Come early to pray tonight. Raise your hands unto the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. Thank you for each and every one that is here. Let this message, God, leave the walls of this sanctuary and let it stir the hearts of people, people that have been witness to already, backsliders, God, that you would move upon them in a great and wonderful way. I ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.